Thank you for tuning in to this special Oscar series episode of Movie Geeks United. Few movies in recent memory rely so extensively on the delicate intricacies of sound than A Quiet Place. From the sparest footsteps to the completely silent world of one of its lead characters to the unique clicks emanating from its alien creatures, the sonic quality of the film is perhaps its most consequential characteristic. We spoke to three members of the film's sound team, two of whom were just Oscar-nominated for their work on the film. Sound editors Ethan Vanderrein and Eric Dahl have been on the Oscar stage before. They both won for their stellar work on Peter Jackson's King Kong and Lord of the Rings' The Two Towers. In this conversation, they're joined by another essential member of the team, re-recording mixer Brandon Proctor. Well, first thing I wanted to know from you guys is when you first uh, read the script and heard this concept, uh, what about it jumped out at you? What most excited you about this whole project? I, I guess we'll go around. We'll start with Eric. Um, yeah, upon reading the script, um, just from page one, I was blown away with the use of sound in the storytelling. You know, the, the best scripts um, are conceived of with sound in mind, but this is probably the most sound intensive script I'd, I'd ever read. Um, sound is a central character. Um, sound is necessary to survival for this family. Um, they've, you know, had to learn how to adapt to by understanding sound to this world in order to survive. And of course, sound becomes the, the weapon as well. So it's just sound is baked into the DNA of A Quiet Place. So it was a thrilling script to read. And uh, we realized right away, I think, what a huge challenge it would be because of that. <laughs> yeah. And Ethan, uh, I mean, along those same lines, I understand that the I mean, we're talking about a movie that has very, very little dialogue. So I'm thinking the script itself might not have been as weighty as some of the others you're used to. It, what, were the, was the text of the script, was it very specific about, about the use of sound? Uh, no, not, uh, not particularly. It was um, more descriptive of, you know, uh, of sort of the action and what was, what was taking place. Um, and it was really refreshing to to read a script with so little words and so little dialogue in it. And, you know, when it was first pitched to us, this was um, actually before we were sent the script, but it was just um, being pitched to us by one of the producers. And he said, hey, I've got this. We're going to be doing this amazing movie. We'd love to get you guys on it. There's like. Uh, one page of dialogue and no music. One, just one source cue in it. Because um, at that at that early time, they they were planning on not having any score either. Um, so we immediately thought, oh man, this is an amazing, what a cool opportunity. Of course, the music part um, changed as the process continued, but. Still, you know, the one page of dialogue pretty much um, held true. Mm. And and Brandon, uh, tell tell me about your your reaction to the project and what you found most unique and challenging about it. Yeah, well, 
the, the funny thing for me, I didn't get the script right away. I just was kind of like asked if I wanted to do this film, and I was already intrigued by the title alone. I was like, A Quiet Place. Like, it's baked into the title alone, like, that there's, there's going to be a sound job. And I'm like, cool, very interested. And I'm just kind of like puzzled. We're like, on the schedule, I'm like, oh, there's two days of dialogue print next to that's strange. You know, like I was, because I was brought on so late. I'm like, what does that mean? I go, that sounds exciting or it sounds scary. Or I'm, I'm not sure. It's like, so just, just the idea that there were like not much time devoted to dialogue was kind of giving me some hints. And then once I started talking to Ethan and Eric about it, they were just telling me about all these, you know, places you could go, you know, and spaces and special envelopes and, you know, all the stuff. I'm like, this is, this sounds amazing. So it's kind of a you know, dream job to kind of have a, a project that you can actually dive in with sound in mind. Yeah, I mean, the sound is so, uh, more so than most films, it is so intrinsic to the design of the film um, and the experience of, of, of watching it. It, it. You Your ears are so attuned to every single sound that emanates from that track. Uh, it's it's an amazing, uh, amazing thing. And, and Eric, I'm wondering, did, since sound is so essential to this particular movie in a unique way, did this, did your work dictate at all the, the way it was shot or the way picture was edited? I mean, it, did it have that dynamic at all in that process? Um, well, definitely in how the picture was edited. Um, in terms of how it was shot, you know, we didn't really get going on sound design at when production was happening. Though John Krasinski, our director, was thinking about sound the whole time um, to the point where, you know, uh, Millicent Simmons, who plays Regan, um, the deaf daughter, you know, it, it being non-negotiable for him to cast a deaf daughter, uh, an actual deaf actress, she taught the entire cast American Sign Language um, and then John enforced this um, strict silence rule on set. You know, normally sets are pretty noisy places um, where you got, you know, art department clanking around and people talking and walkies going. And John enforced this silence um, rule so that the incredible cast could stay in character and, and the quiet could embody the entire process. Um, once we got going, um, when Chris Tellison, the picture editor, um, had kind of uh, gotten the first draft of the picture edit together, um, that, that's when we really hit the ground running. And we had daily back and forth with um, Chris where we'd get picture updates from him and we'd be sending updates daily to him. In, uh, and he was in New York and you know, we were working in L.A., so, um, you know, modern technology was very useful for having that that free flow of mm -hmm. sound uh, going the whole time. And, uh, and of course, you know, uh, sound is going to affect the picture edit on a film like A Quiet Place. So, um, you know, there were certain shots, like, for example, where we requested extending the head and tail of, like, visual effects shots um, one that comes to mind is uh, there's a shot of the close-up of the creature in the cornfield scene. And this is Regan's first close encounter with one of the creatures. And um, it's, uh, she can't hear it, 
because, you know, she's, she's deaf behind her and the creature can't see her because it's blind. Um, so it's kind of stretching open its, its ears to try to sense her. And so we have this shot of the ears flaying open and it, it was too short for us to establish a number of different important key plot points um, to tell the story of how the creatures themselves perceive sound. So we had the um, Scott Farrar, incredible VFX supervisor, extended the head of the shot of the ears for us so we could see them in a closed position and then be able to hear the audience's perspective of sonic reality, which is the, all the insects um, and crickets going in the cornfield. Then as the ears flay open, we go into the creature's sonic point of view, which is the heightened, you know, hyper-acute and um, intense sound of those same insects. And then in the same shot, we had them extend the tail end, so then it could twist into this electronic feedback, which we're setting up. You know, the creature has some kind of interference with Regan's cochlear implant. So then here it's heightened perception of that feedback. So, so sound is very much affecting the, the image, which, you know, it's ideal when you can have that kind of alchemy. Yeah, and that scene you mentioned uh, with, with, with the girl, with the, with the creature uh, approaches her for the first time, uh, that's a standout in the movie for me because I, I love the way you guys pay attention to the, the sound in terms of the perspective of the character, like who the audience is with at that moment and how, how they hear and from what direction they hear. But that scene with the girl, you have, and you do it a couple of times in the movie, uh, no sound because it's from her perspective. And that felt very unusual. There's not even a room tone. There's not even an ambiance. Uh, that has to have been a unique thing to be able to do on this movie with no sound at all. That's for anybody. Yeah. Are you asking? Is it a certain person you're directing? <laughs> Ethan, you want to take that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, honestly, that was really one of the most exciting discoveries for us to make in the, in the process of um, developing the sound design was, you know, early on, um, actually the first scene that we started uh, working on was that, scene in the cornfield that Eric was just describing um, and we realized you know in order to tell the story and and get all the sort of important plot information across it was going to be important to actually go into the sonic perspective of our characters and in a way experience you know what they're experiencing um, and that included, of course, the sonic perspective of the creature because, you know, he has no visual blind. Um, and, and so we, you know, started playing around with going into uh, Millie's character's um, perspective. And actually at this point in the movie, when she has her cochlear implant turned on, we actually, there is a very subtle sound that we designed in there, which is sort of, um, it's really the sound of her body, the sound of her, you know, um, sort of blood pumping through her, her veins and her heart pumping and her, and her, really her nervous system. We, 
we did, we based that sound design on Millie's own description of what her experience of um, of perceiving the world when when her own cochlear implant is turned on. She she described actually her mom described her mom um, acts as her translator, and her mom described to John Krasinski when they were shooting the movie, you know what her experience um, is like. Mm-hmm. And then John, when we started designing the movie, John you know described to us um, what. And then we took that and we related it to our own experiences that we've had um, spending time in anechoic chambers, which are, you know, um, rooms that have been built to be completely acoustically isolated from the world. And what happens is when you go into one of these rooms, um, well, one of the first things that happens is you lose your balance because, you know, sound, it turns out, is, is crucial to spatial awareness and and actually keeping standing upright. So yeah. when you go into one of these rooms, the first things they do is instruct you to sit down um, because it's dangerous to stay standing. You may just fall. But after a few minutes, what happens is your ears actually open up to the point where you start to actually hear the internal workings of your own body. Mm. Um, and you know your blood, your your blood, your nervous system. Uh, just all these very subtle sound, internal sounds that, of course, uh, in everyday life, we're, we're not even aware of. But if you're given the chance to really have your ears open up, um, this, is, this is what happens. So <clears throat> the sound we designed for, uh, for Millie's sonic envelope when she has her cochlear implant was, was, was sort of based around that. And then there's, we have uh, like three opportunities in the film when she actually turns off her cochlear implant. And that's when we're able to actually go to complete uh, digital zero um, and, you know, not, no sound at all. And the first time we did that was actually the scene uh, when Millie's on her bed and she's about to test out the new, the new implant that, that her dad has been building for her in, his, in, his, in the basement workshop to try and, you know, improve her hearing. And she turns off she takes it or off. she takes out her existing cochlear implant to put in the new one. And that's when we go to just complete, uh, complete digital zero. And something about that moment, the first time we tried it, I just, it just took my breath away. Literally. I just went, <gasps> You know, it was um, there's something so shocking in a way about uh, about doing that because if you think about it, um, first of all, that's something that that uh, we had never done in any movie we've worked on, mm-hmm. um, and second of all, uh, it's it's something that is so rare in in life in general to be you know to have a moment of pure and utter silence. It's just such a rare thing that um, it ends up being kind of shocking. It's shocking, but also some, there's something so emotional about it because I think it's that moment that really makes us realize, you know, how vulnerable she is as a character. You know, yeah, <laughs> that, live in a, that was in a world where sound <laughs> is so crucial and to realize, oh my God, she can't hear anything 
Mm. So she is she's so vulnerable in in this world and things so um, important about connecting, you know, to her character in that way. And and then we realized, okay, we can use this technique with all the characters in our film to help us connect with them in a really intimate way. And it is it is a, a very unusual uh, experience watching the movie because audiences are not accustomed, just like you said, to hearing in that sense. I mean, we're accustomed to movies with big sound. We're accustomed to a, a symphony of sounds when we go to the cinema. And so was there a process by which you, you really paid attention to the testing of this movie to see not only if your effects work, but how, how much of this of stretches of silence or minimal sound an audience could tolerate? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, the things with this film, and we work on these, these films and we work on them in sections. And we, you know, it could be 15, 20 minute sections or five and six of those or something. And, you know, we really found this film, we had to play it, you know, from start to finish to see if these silent pockets work as a storytelling, you know, feature the way we wanted them to, or does it take you out of the moment? Does it take you out of the movie? Do you start losing the story? Because some of them go long, you know, especially towards the end, we get longer. And, you know, like, is the audience going to buy it? Are they going to start assuming that the, that the speakers blow or something else? You know, you, you really have to be, you know, careful when you start removing sound from a film because it's just not done enough. And, uh, so we did, you know, there were lots of parts of this film that we had to play to see, like, are we too quiet? Are we too loud? When we get quiet and how long we go for that, is the audience going to continue along with us? Um, it, it was kind of a cost of, of doing that, which normally you might play like that 20 minute section back and eventually play back the whole feature. But we had to do more long plays on this one to really kind of see how that was working as a storytelling device. Mm. And it, for most times, it really was working. You know, we wanted it to work, and um, you, know, you play it back, and you're like, you think it works, and then that, you know, we finally had a screening in front of an audience, and you know, that was kind of the the last test for us to to know that, you know, when they went crazy for it, you know, that it was actually was working, and that they went along with us on the journey. You know, from a moviegoer's perspective, what what was refreshing to me sitting in a crowded theater watching it was that. Um, you know, normally you can hear munchies all over the place when you're when you're watching the movie, but it almost seemed like the audience was scared to make any sounds because they were afraid that they would attract the aliens themselves. Uh, it was great yeah, audience they would participation. The audience with anger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I have friends that that said they would they would go home, go home after the movie, and and they were like trying to be quiet as they got in their house, and they were like they just said, like they were just kind of still walking on eggshells. Like I guess we gotta. Wait a minute! This is not real life. It's like it affected them so much they're still <laughs> yeah. in it, you know, even on the way home. Yeah. Totally. Well, that was one of the greatest pieces of feedback we got from a few people after they heard the movie. People always talk about watching a movie, but you know, hearing the movie, and <laughs> yeah, they left the theater and just like were kind of overwhelmed by by the sound of reality, which they were kind of, you know, had tuned out before. And, you know, it's kind of fun to hear people hearing the world in a new way um, mm. after experiencing a quiet place. Uh, I, I hate to turn to, a, you know, kind of a pedestrian question, but I think it's important. Um, 
you know, every every year the public sees at the Oscars a different category for sound editing and sound mixing. And I've talked to a lot of, of, of people from the industry of sound over the years, uh, and they said, we, we see no reason why those are divided because we all kind of work together. But maybe, Brandon, you could chime in on this, and you and Eric and Ethan, you can give your two cents on it too, about the the distinctive differences between editing and mixing, they really should be considered two separate kind of art forms in those categories. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, to start, I think they are two different art forms. Um, and there is so much in a project. They do merge together a lot of parts. Um, but, you know, in its instance, you might have the, the sound editors and designers working, you know, months before mixers come on. And then the mixers come on and start collaborating with the designers and maybe help try to push that in a different direction or, or, or the same direction, but like have different and new ideas. It's just all about collaborating. That's exactly what film is. And, and so, you know, it, it really depends. There are some projects that you get on where, you know, so much is figured out in advance and, and mixers are, are really dealing with dynamics and other aspects. And then there are, there are parts of the film that, you know, on this film, it was fun because, you know, the three of us got to do so much together in the mix room and actually have, you know, we pushed all these picture notes, you know, while we're mixing and, and deciding when music comes in and getting rid of music and so forth. So there is so much creativity happening together and which is what mm -hmm. you want. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to put every film in the same category and say, both film, this film deserves mixing and design, and this one des only deserves only mix or design. Um, the BAFTAs have done that, where they, they put them together, um, and I think the Oscars have it at some point in their past as well. Eric, is that how you remember it? It used to be put together, is that correct? Well, yeah, in the, in the Academy, well, the history is that sound editors were not even acknowledged um, for Oscars. Um, I think it was the department head of the studio and mixers. Um, in the sound category, and I think it was um, it was Ben Burt. Ben Burt when Ben Burt did his stunning Star Wars um, work, uh, you know, creating the voice of R two D two and the sound of a lightsaber and the sound of a Tie Fighter. Um, you know, the Academy saw that his achievement was of such a caliber that they invented a special Oscar for him that eventually. Be, um, later became its own category, sound editing. Yeah, I mm. mean, the interesting thing is, I mean, since that time, the technology has evolved quite a bit. Um, you know, when that, when that category was invented, it was back when um, all the sound editing was done on 35-millimeter magnetic film. Um, and so the sound editors really, um, for the most part, would only be able to listen to one element, um, you know, at a time as they were editing and wouldn't be able to hear how all these elements were going to start uh, working together until getting onto the mixing stage. Hmm. And now, of course, with uh, digital editing, Pro Tools specifically, um, the, the whole, uh, the process has changed so that the track comes together in a more organic way where right from the very beginning, all of the elements can be worked together against each other from the very beginning. So I think that has definitely caused 
the two disciplines to sort of meld together quite a bit more. And now, like on the mixing stage, we have the Pro Tools right there with the with the editing session, and there's a lot of sometimes. Um, you know, there's quite a bit of editing that happens on the on the mixing stage, as, as Brandon just just mentioned. I mean, Brandon was was doing a bunch of sort of what could be considered editing as you know as he was mixing. So, um, and then there's a certain amount of sort of what might be called mixing that happens, you know, early on in the editing process. So, I think in many ways because of the the way that technology has evolved, the, the, the disciplines have merged um, together in, in, some, in some sense. Yeah. And to add to that, it's absolutely true. Kind of even the way I work, which is kind of like a, you know, well, I could pull the fader down, but why don't I just cut it and, and mute it or get rid of the region, you know, instead of right. pulling down the fader. So it's kind of the, you know, that's why I'm editing on the mixing stage. It's kind of like a little, it does meld together because of that idea. Yeah. Uh, what were you going to say? Um, yeah, I was just going to add one little caveat, which, you know, one way I sometimes describe the difference, you know, we've talked about some of the similarities, but one way I kind of describe the difference between sound editing and sound mixing is um, you can think of it kind of like composing and conducting. You know, a big part of our jobs in the sound editing process is collecting the ingredients, the raw ingredients, and that's through, you know, doing original recordings and sound design creation. And so I think of that kind of as writing the sheet music, and then a, a good mixer takes that sheet music and then interprets it with the orchestra and can say, okay, more flutes here, or more wind and trees here and, you know, interpret it in its final form for the audience. Yeah. Um, if yeah. that's helpful. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's, yeah. that's a wonderful yeah. thing. Yeah. Thank you. I just had, I just had two more quick questions for you guys. Uh, uh, you know, looking over the resumes of all three of you, I mean, you've worked on such a, a wide and diverse array of films from, you know, the transformer films to the work with Terry Malick and, all all the way up to now with a quiet place, and I know that uh, you know a lot of the sounds that we hear in films. Uh, some of them are practical. If there's a running stream, then that's exactly what you're capturing, that you're recording. But what are some of the most surprising sources of sound uh, in a quiet place or any movie in your career that 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 you've happened upon? In, in, any any of you that want to chime in on that? This is where serendipity comes in. Do you want me to take this one? Um, well, I can. The first thing that pops to mind um, in a quiet place is what we ended up with. And you know, one of the interesting things about our job is that it's never a straight line from, you know, from brainstorming to what the movie ends up being. You know, it's it's a it's always a journey to sort of figure out what's going to work. And a lot of times it happens by sheer accident or serendipity, you know, as Eric just described. And so, you know, one of the, th one of the things in, in a quiet place in, in our first brainstorming session with John Krasinski, we're, one of the things we we're talking about is like, what are these creatures, what should they sound like? And then, you know, Eric and I came back to our room and started working together and we're thinking, okay, these creatures are, are blind, 
Um, so it would make sense for them to use some kind of echolocation to navigate through the world. And so we started playing around with sounds from real-world animals, dolphins, bats, and bluegills, things like that, that use echolocation to navigate. And um, but So we started playing around with those sounds, but they, they felt too recognizable in a way. Um, and we, we realized what we really wanted to do was come up with a, a sound that wasn't recognizable, but that could work in, this, in a sort of echolocation pattern that an audience would immediately sort of recognize as, oh, I get it. I get what's going on. They're using echolocation. So we just, by pure accident, stumbled upon a, a prop we have in our collection, which is a stun gun. And we ended up recording it um, against a grape, uh, which has, you know, which is a little bit like um, like uh, human uh, skin in a way. It has a it has a thin, you know, membrane of skin across sort of a fleshy underbelly. Um, so the the stun gun conduct, conducts against it and creates this sort of zapping noise, which we recorded brought into Pro Tools and, and slowed way down, pitched it way down, and it made this sort of cool, like, k -k 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 sound, which to us, you know, felt like, um, felt like echolocation. And the, the cool thing about it that we also liked is it had sort of a, it had an electrical component to it, which we thought was a cool idea because these, these alien creatures also have an electrical component to them, mm. which, which is what causes them to, to have interference with other electrical appliances that, they're, that they get close to. So anyway, that's the sound that we ended up using, uh, the main sound for their echolocation, and it's, it's something that, um, you know, isn't, uh, isn't obvious. Well, before I let you go, I just wanted to know uh, from you guys, you know, screenwriters, they look to the newspaper to find the next source of the next topic of the script. And, you know, actors sit and people watch to learn mannerisms and things and behaviors. Do you guys find that you're always in your daily lives very acutely aware of, of sound? And, and when you hear a new sound, do you think, oh, how can I implement that? I mean, uh, do you find that that sense that you have of sound is – is definitely with you in your daily life. Yeah, on on the on a good day, absolutely. <laughs> and <laughs> the nice thing about doing what we do is, you know, you're always looking for the next cool thing and the next cool sound. So if if you just exercise awareness, you know, being in the now, <laughs> um, that that's the only way to find those things by being aware and having yeah. your ears open. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, mm. And I find, you know, when I'm recording, that it, you go into kind of a trance, and you listen even harder to every little moment, and it's it's kind of the most intense being in the moment feeling. Um, and in a funny way, becomes like incredibly meditative. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah. That's, well. That's, one of the wonderful things about our jobs is listening. I, I do it on walks all the time. It's it's like literally I was mm -hmm. in New York last week and I 
got out. I, I live in California, but like it's just everything sounds different there. There's so many things. You know, I walk around the next room at 15 minutes and just have to walk. And literally, it was like I just wish I could record everything I was hearing because I was so aware of it. Like, what is that sound? It's constantly something hitting you in such a kind of an orchestra, you know, way. You know, and uh, I'm always. It, it seems to be walks. It's, I, I like getting up in the morning before the, you know, the sun's up. Everything sounds a little bit different. You know, there's a lot of people awake and cars are on the highway and. You, do, you hear just different dims everywhere, the way, it, you know, life kind of starts waking up, you know, all the animals. There's just something about it, you know, constantly yeah. hearing something. Wow. It's, it's amazing. Well, I I got to tell you guys. I bring my recording with me everywhere I go. In fact, my wife is um, super accommodating our honeymoon i had the recording rig with us in hawaii we just had our five year anniversary the recording rig was with us in tahiti you're so lucky yeah. you're not divorced yet <laughs> i'm lucky i'm lucky i have a wife who likes sound 